Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now, and I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our hearts to hear from you. As you say here in verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, as we read your word, we are listening to the Holy Spirit. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and use your word upon our hearts, Lord, that you would meet every person here this morning. Lord, we come in a lot of different places, some of us hopeful and ready to hear from you, some of us tired, some of us discouraged, um, some of us just distant. Lord, you know every heart, would you come and open us to your word and revive us by the power of your spirit so that we would be moved to see Jesus and worship him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We start each week with a question for the kids. It's our sermon introduction. So our question this week is, kids, have you ever noticed something about somebody else that they didn't notice about themselves, something they couldn't see about themselves, like something in their teeth or something on their clothes, you know, something stuck to their shoe? Or... Have you ever seen that? Okay. What is that like whenever you see that in somebody else? It's weird, okay, all right. It's like, oh, that's strange, what's going on there? Zeke. What do you say? Okay, so he once had an apple stuck in his teeth, right? Yeah, it's very common. You can have something stuck in your teeth and have no idea. Any other kids? You ever think it's funny? Gray. That's right. I was wondering if you guys would remember that. My kids this week were like obsessed with putting a sticker on my back in, in a place I couldn't see. And you know how this works. You know, I guess they're seeing it at school. It was very common whenever I was in school. So you know how it is. You've got to be you know, really discreet with it. You've got to come up. And you know, you, usually you act like you're, you know, you're loving on somebody or patting them on the back. But you're actually putting a sticker on their back, something they couldn't see. And, of course, my kids are just, they're, they're thinking it's the funniest thing they've ever seen in my life, that, that dad's got a sticker on his back that he can't see. Whenever I was in school, what you'd do is you'd put a sign on somebody's back that said, kick me, and have an arrow pointing down. And, you know, so this poor person is going through school, and they're getting kicked from behind, by, and they don't know why, and everybody thinks it's absolutely hilarious. I've done it to people, and I've had it done to me. It's a horrible feeling. Now I think you, like, go to jail in school if that happens, you know. It's like you are immediately arrested. It's considered bullying. You know, you're going to prison. But, yeah, right, yeah. So, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever seen that in somebody else, sometimes it's really funny. But if it's you, if it's you that has something that you can't see, it's not a very good feeling, is it? In fact, some of us... Maybe as an adult, you know, you, you go somewhere, you're in some, uh, around some important people or whatever, and you come home and you look in the mirror and you've got something stuck in your teeth. It's mortifying and you want to say, why didn't somebody tell me? Right? It's embarrassing whenever somebody tells you, but you're glad for it because you don't walk around like an idiot with something stuck in your teeth all day. This, this is a simple illustration to show us our need for people in our life who will tell us what we can't see about ourselves. 
In reality, there's so many things about our life, not just lettuce in your teeth, that we cannot see about ourselves, but that are obvious to the people around us. One of the things that we're talking about in our sermon series throughout this fall is we're talking about community. We're talking about uh, being the body of Christ. We're talking about our relationships with one another within the church. And the Scripture talks a great deal about what our relationships are to look like with one another. Sometimes we just think, hey, the main thing is my personal relationship with Jesus, and that's, main, that's, that's really all that's really important. Yeah, I'm supposed to be nice to other people, but you know, really, the way that I treat other people in my relationships is a far distant second to that number one. That's just not what Scripture teaches. In fact, it teaches that our relationship with God and our relationship with one another in the body of Christ is inseparable. You can't separate the two. And so we've been learning that, and part of what we're going to talk about today is our need for accountability and community. We're going to talk about our need to have people in our life who love us enough, who know us enough to be able to speak into our lives about those things that we can't see ourselves. And that's a little scary, right? So at the end, we'll talk about what do we have to have, what do we have to know to give us the confidence and courage to be that kind of community. But first, we're going to see that call in the passage here in Hebrews 3. So if you look together at your passage, beginning at verse 7, and you'll see the writer of Hebrews is quoting a psalm. He's actually quoting Psalm 95 here. And Psalm 95 was about the Exodus generation, way back in the Old Testament. Do you remember back in the the spring, we did a sermon series in the book of Exodus. If you remember that, you know, we had a tabernacle here and we had all kinds of different things. Uh, We sacrificed some animals in here and, you know, all that. You remember that, very vivid. But as we walked through the book of Exodus, we followed the life of the Israelites in that day. And we saw how they had been rescued out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But as we walked through and we watched their life, we saw, even though they had seen God do incredible things, rescuing them through the blood of a lamb, parting the Red Sea, we saw that their hearts were constantly turning away from the Lord. They, they were constantly hardening their hearts to the Lord. They were not believing, even though they had seen God rescue them in dramatic fashion, yet the very next instance, as soon as they met with some hardship, unbelief. That's what he's talking about. That's what the psalm is talking about. Looking back on them and saying, don't be like them. It's using them as an example. But what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews applies that as an example to believers. He takes the example of that that generation that turned from the Lord and did not enter the promised land and uses it as an example for followers of Jesus, New Testament believers. You see that right there in verse 12. He says, see to it, brothers. He's talking to Christians here. Brothers implies also sisters, brothers and sisters in the Lord. He is talking to Christians. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't be found. How does he say it here? See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's warning them. 
Make sure that your heart doesn't turn out to be like theirs. Make sure you don't fall away in the way that they did. Now, first off, is he saying that if someone is truly a believer and is truly saved, that they can ultimately fall away? No. This passage doesn't teach that, and the Bible is very clear that if someone is truly saved, if they've truly been born again, then God will keep you to Himself to the end. You might have seasons of tremendous struggle in your life, but eventually God will never let you go. That's what we sang in our song earlier. But here's where the problem becomes. How do you know if you've been saved? How do you know if saving faith is not just temporary faith for you, but it's faith that remains all the way to the end. That's how he refers to it in verse 14. Holding that confidence in Christ all the way to the end, that's saving faith. And so the question becomes, how do you know? That's, what, that's his warning. Make sure it's real in your heart. How do we know if it's real? How do we know if you've been truly changed from the inside? Will you see it in your life? A life of obedience to Jesus, following Jesus. Not a perfect life, but a life that follows Him and responds to Him and clings to Him to the end is the evidence that you've been changed in the heart. Not the way. That's not how you earn it. It's rather the evidence that that's truly taken place in your heart. But the the crucial thing for us to see from this passage is the warning for us. And the warning is against the presence of indwelling sin in the heart of believers. That is the main thing that this passage is talking about. It's warning us and reminding us, and Scripture does this over and over and over, that there is inside the heart of a believer remaining sin. And it's dangerous and it's powerful. And the passage is a warning about that. Now, sometimes it's very common for us to believe when I become a follower of Jesus... Whenever I've prayed the prayer or walked the aisle, I'm good, right? I've got my ticket into heaven. I've got my fire insurance, you know. I've passed go, collect $200, got the t-shirt. I'm in, right? There's, there's no more worries. There's no more concern. There's no fight. There's no battle. So often, that is what we do with the assurance of the gospel. So we say, I'm good. It's all good. And there's no living with a, with, a, with a warning, with a sense of we are called to a battle. And whenever we forget the reality of indwelling sin in our life, we're a sitting duck. It, it's so often for us to think that, that whenever I become a believer, I'm no longer a sinner. But Scripture over and over and over says that is totally untrue. When you become a believer, it does not mean you are no longer a sinner. It doesn't mean that somehow magically all your sin has evaporated. And of course, you know this, right? Look at our lives. Look at our hearts. Ask your spouse. You will will wake up very quickly, right? It does not mean that sin is removed from my life. It only means that I am now forgiven of the sin in my life. But sin remains. And it is powerful. And it is dangerous. And when we forget this reality about indwelling sin we begin to think that our greatest danger and our greatest problem is outside of us, right? The greatest danger to my life is the world out there. It's the influences of the world. It's the devil, although most of us don't even think about that. It's a real threat. But it's so very common for us to think the problem and the danger is outside of me, and it's not in my heart. 
But Scripture says the greatest danger in my life, the greatest problem that I have is not outside of me, it's inside of me. Scripture teaches this over and over and over. When we think that our problem is outside, we begin to think that our problem is in our circumstances. We begin to think that the the outburst of anger in my life at my kids is not because of something in my heart, but it's rather because my kids won't obey, or I've had a hard, stressful day, or there's something in my circumstances that has caused me to react in this way. Let me tell you something. You are not responsible for what happens to you. What we are responsible for is how we respond to what happens to us. And that is what exposes our hearts. It's so common for us to think, the problem with my marriage is not me, it is my spouse, of course. The problem with my relationships is not in me, it is them, it is how they are treating me. The problem of this uh, debilitating anxiety and fear that takes over my life is a result of the stress and the circumstances I'm in. Not because of something in my heart. You see, Scripture comes to us and says, no, 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 no. The root of the problem is not outside of you. It is inside of you. It is the remaining indwelling sin in each of our hearts. Every single one of us. And in the passage, he kind of takes us into the anatomy of the heart. You kind of come in and you begin to see what takes place in our heart. And one of the things that he tells us right here in the passage, verse 13, is that sin in its essence is deceitful. You see that in verse 13. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The very essence of sin is that it's deceiving. It wears a mask. It cloaks itself. Never does sin appear to be as bad as it really is. As we're tempted with sin, as we consider sin, as we're struggling with sin, the the pleasures of sin are always magnified, while the cost of it is always downplayed. Always. This is exactly what sin does. And sin doesn't want to just take a little bit. Sin is always pressing for more. It always goes, wants to go the whole way. And it deceives at every single step. It doesn't seem dangerous. It doesn't seem deadly. And here's the most deceiving part of all about sin. The main person that it deceives is you and me. The sin within me creates an innate spiritual blindness in my heart. And that's true for every single one of us. Very rarely can we clearly see the sin patterns in our own life. Now, in other people, you see it just like that, right? Very clearly, I can look at other people and I can notice the patterns, the faults, the hang-ups, very clearly. But in my own life, rarely do I see it. It's because our, our view of ourselves is distorted. We're biased. Our view of ourselves is like looking into a carnival mirror. You know, you ever look in a carnival mirror and you're wavy, you know, your neck is like three feet long? You know, as we look at ourselves, and we all have a view of ourselves, it's distorted, overly positive, right? It's, it's we're biased against being able to see the true nature of our hearts. We're looking into the carnival mirror as we look at ourselves and we think, I'm doing pretty good. Not that much danger. The problem is primarily outside of me. I'm getting there. All is well whenever the people around us can see very clearly. All is not well. So the very nature of sin is that it deceives, and primarily who it deceives is me. So we need to recognize, and this is crucial for living the Christian life and following Jesus, 
I am primarily blind to the full reality of sin in my life. That's, that's just a, that is a biblical truth being offered to you. I cannot see myself accurately. Therefore, I need help to see myself in an accurate way. But this, this deception begins to create a progression in our life that we also see right here in the passage. How sin begins with the deceit and wants to take us to a particular place. Right in the passage, as he says in verse 13, he says, So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, the deceitfulness of sin wants to lead you down a progression into a place of hardness. This, this takes place, and I'm sure we can all um, acknowledge and we know, what, we know this progression in our own life. Whenever I'm tempted to sin or whenever I begin to sin, there's a certain deception that is taking place there. But for those who are in Christ, those who have the Holy Spirit in us and, and who have a new heart, the Holy Spirit will begin to speak into your life at that moment. He'll begin to prick your conscience at that moment in order to invite you back under the mercy of Christ. And He will, he will uh, lead you to begin to acknowledge this sin, to forsake it, and then to come under the mercy of Christ. But sometimes, many times, when we experience that prick of the Holy Spirit, there's another kind of choice that we make. And the choice is instead of a repentance and a turning, or rather a justifying it. You know how this works. As we begin to be pricked by the Spirit, we begin to tell ourselves certain things like, well, it's not that bad. And a lot of people are doing it. And, you know, really, what's wrong with this? I mean, it's, it doesn't seem all that dangerous. And, and um, I mean, after all, does the Bible specifically say this? We have all kinds of different strategies by which we begin to justify sins and to minimize them. Whenever we begin to do that, and this happens in micro ways in each of our hearts. I hope you can think of a thousand ways this happens every day in your heart. I certainly can with mine. But when we begin to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit by justifying, we begin to step into unbelief. You see, what you're doing there is you're beginning to interpret reality apart from what God says in His Word apart from what God is saying through the Holy Spirit. That's unbelief. And as we begin to walk in that unbelief and sin begins to progress, it begins to harden the heart. It was kind of like if you've ever had a pair of shoes that begins to rub you wrong in some place on your foot. Now, if you don't address it, you'll eventually get a blister. It'll be very painful. You know, that's, that's kind of God's design of the body. Uh, as a safety mechanism saying to you, hey, stop, you're injuring your foot, change something, fix this, change your shoes. But if you keep going, you know what begins to happen? A callus begins to form. It begins to harden. And before long, you won't feel anything. The rub's still going on, but you're not feeling it at all. This is what happens in our hearts as we begin to walk down that path of unbelief of deception. We won't feel anything at all. After a while, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is something that we can't even, we can't even experience anymore. Before long, we begin to interpret all of reality apart from God. We begin to lose our taste and our desire for God's Word, for prayer, for gathering with His people, with worship. That, 
is a description of the progression that sin always wants to take in our life and that we need God's rescue from every single day. So, the writer of Hebrews is saying and pleading with us, you need to see the greatest danger that each of us has is not outside of us, it's inside of us. Sin is dangerous. And we are in daily need of God's rescue and grace. So what does the passage hold out for us? What does it call us to as a protection from our greatest danger, our own sin? Did you see it in the passage, verse 13? It is accountability in community. Look again what he says. Verse 13. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So how are we not hardened? How does this progression not take over our heart? Encourage one another daily. It calls us to a community, to be a community, to be in relationship with one another where we are walking with one another daily. It's not an accident that he says daily there. That, that we are marked in the church by relationships in which we know each other to such a level that we understand what one another's sin patterns are, that we understand what one another's places of blindness are in our life, that that we're able to encourage each other, that we're able to support each other and walk alongside each other, that, that, that change is a community project that the church is primarily to be a gathering of these relationships where we are encouraging each other, where we're speaking the gospel into one another's lives. Whenever we're struggling, that we come around one another and we walk together. Because here's the reality for all of us. We are people in desperate need of change, helping people in desperate need of change. It's true of all of us. It's not some certain class of Christians that need this. It's all of us. We need the daily ministry of one another in our lives to encourage each other and to help us to see what we cannot see ourselves. It's not really rocket science, is it? If Scripture tells me I'm largely blind to my deepest problem and that I cannot see what I most need to see about myself, it makes perfect sense that I need God's people in my life who love me to help me to see what I cannot see and to support me as I turn to Jesus for fresh grace daily. That's what we're being called to here. So here's a little simple illustration to illustrate this need of accountability and community. So I'm someone who needs to exercise. I I need exercise in my life because if I don't, I just go to pot. I mean, I'm... I'm somebody that, that, that needs, um, um, I, I need routine in my life. I need something that I'm, I'm commi- uh, giving myself to. And, and really all of us need exercise. But here's what I've found as I've tried to exercise throughout the years. I can't do it alone. As I go into the gym to work out by myself, do you know what often happens? Well, if I'm not feeling like it that day, I'm like, I just don't think I'm going to go today. I find that most weeks, if I'm in there two days, it's an accomplishment. And whenever I go, it's so hard to push myself. I mean, I can go in and I can barely do anything. I'm be like, man, well, I really pushed it today. But the reality is I'm not. And I'm not growing. And I'm not, I'm not seeing the kind of changes I want to see. I'm not, uh, I'm not growing in endurance. I'm not getting into shape because alone, I can't. 
It's impossible by myself. So a couple of weeks ago, Ashley and I started CrossFit at the gym here. Now, if you've ever heard about CrossFit, which I'm sure most of you have, because if somebody's in CrossFit, that's probably all you're going to hear about from them, right? Well, it's because it's such a wonderful thing. But the beauty, the, the, the real brilliance of CrossFit is that it takes uh, fitness and it puts it right in the middle of community. So CrossFit is you, you come together with a group of people and you work out together and you push one another. And I, I kind of had a fear going into CrossFit, I thought. Man, as I look at those people in CrossFit, they're like jacked. And they're in insane kind of shape. I mean, they're like lifting cars in there. They're climbing roofs. You know, they're, it's insane what they're doing. In the, I can't do any of that. If I go in, then everybody's going to be like, who is this schmuck in here? You know, I'm just going to be shamed. I'm going to be rejected in here. But I decided to do it anyways. And you know what I found? That was not at all the attitude of the people in there. Yes, it's true. The people that were in these CrossFit groups are in so many different places. Some of them have been doing it for years. Some of them are in phenomenal shape. Some of them not so much. They're just getting started. But here's what was amazing in there. As I stepped in, the point was not who's the best in here. The point was how do we help one another grow? It was a sense that everyone in there felt, I'm not where I want to be. I want to keep pushing myself. I've not arrived. Nobody has a sense of being, uh, that they've arrived. And also, within CrossFit, there's this sense of encouragement for one another. It's accountability. If I don't go that day, I'm going to know, Grace is going to know about that. And she might ask me very kindly one day, hey, how's it going? We missed you today. Or I might hear it from Jamie and Anne-Marie, some of my CrossFit people over here. You know, it's accountability. Whenever I'm in there... And I have this temptation to kind of loaf. But there's Grace standing there. And there's Jamie next to me. And Jamie's like, come on, you can do it. Do one more. And you know what? Sometimes I don't do it. The other day Jamie was like, come on, push through this last one. I didn't. <laughs> but you know what? He didn't shame me. He was like, good job. It's a wonderful picture of what the church is to be. Okay, this, this growth project we're all called to because none of us is what we were created to be and none of us is what we are being redeemed into being we desperately need to grow the sin in our hearts is far more deadly and dangerous than we even realize ourselves we must have community with one another we must have deep authentic relationships with each other and we must do it together we grow together We must encourage one another daily. Care about one another's growth, not just our own. This is exactly what we're called to be. Now, some of us might be thinking, okay, that's great. So, it's one thing to talk about this in fitness. But you're talking about me opening up my soul to other people. And that can be dangerous. And that can be scary. Some of us have experienced opening your life to other people and being wounded. Some of us, many of us, have experienced that even in the church. And sometimes whenever we do that, whenever we risk, whenever we step out there, whenever we open our life and we're hurt, what do we begin to do? We callous ourselves. And we say, that is pain. I'm not doing that anymore. And we pull back. So the question becomes... How do we become the kind of community we're called to be? How do we, come, 
actually become this kind of community that can actually be vulnerable with each other, real with each other, walk daily in encouragement with one another? And here's the answer. Only by the gospel. Only as we as a community are rooted in the truth of the gospel can we actually live this out. Let me tell you how it works here. The gospel, of course, is the news. It's not what you are supposed to do. News, gospel means good news. It's a report about what God has done. And what He has done in Christ is that He has sent His Son to live a perfect life. No sin. A perfect life of obedience to the Father in our place. He lived a perfect life of vulnerability among one another. And then at the end of His life, He went to the cross and on the cross... He paid for our sin. He bore our guilt. He bore our wrath for all of that sin in our heart. He paid for it. And the thing that you got to see is that that work that I just described was entirely accomplished by Him. It's outside of us. You can't add to it. There's nothing that you can add to it. It was accomplished 2,000 years ago. And as you put your trust in that, as you embrace that, as you put your confidence in that, as the writer of Hebrews says... You become united to Jesus. He now becomes your identity. You see how he puts it in verse 14. He says, we have come to share in Christ. Some of your translations say partakers of Christ. So the idea is is, as we embrace him and his work, we get united to him. He now becomes our identity. His righteousness, my righteousness. His perfect life, his obedience becomes mine. Not as an example but as a substitute. As your confidence in that grows, it frees you to open your life to other people. Why are we afraid? Why do we hide? Why, do we, why does criticism undo us? Which doesn't it? Whenever someone brings criticism to you or brings a piece of truth, do you absolutely crumble? Why do we crumble? Why, why does criticism or facing Hard things about ourselves completely destroy us because our confidence is in ourselves. Our confidence is in our performance. That is the barrier to community. So as our confidence begins to move to the completed work of Jesus, it frees you. It frees you to open your life and vulnerability to other people. It frees you to allow someone to speak something into your life that is hard to hear. Because again, you're not damaging my standing when I hear something hard about myself. Because my standing is not in my performance. It's in His performance. Do you see how the gospel, fundamentally at the heart level, empowers us for community like this? It, it, it allows us to forget about ourselves. We're not... Controlled by the approval of other people, which we so often are. If our confidence is in Christ, then I can have the courage to go to someone I love and say, hey, let's talk about this. I see something in your life. I want to help you. Now, sometimes we don't do that because we're afraid of how they'll respond and we want their approval. But if my confidence is in the completed work of Christ, I can love another person. Another illustration of how this works. CrossFit again. I'm sorry. In CrossFit, there's like this hero of CrossFit. His name is Rich Froning. I mean, he is like the greatest ever. 
Now, CrossFit, uh, all the different uh, camps and organizations from all over the world come together once a year for the CrossFit Games, where they get tortured for a couple hours. You, know, you watch these people just get tortured. Okay? They're competing. And they're competing to, to see who gets the title of the fittest man, woman, the fittest person on earth. And there's one guy that wins it over and over and over and over. He's the fittest man on earth. His name's Rich Froning. You see what the gospel says is it's like, in terms of CrossFit, I get united to Rich Froning. I am now the fittest person on earth, even though I can't do 10 push-ups. You see that logic? I now get the title. I get the name. I get the status. I won. I get the belt. I get the trophy. I get it all, even though I can't run two miles. That is what the gospel means. You have arrived. Your standing, your status is the living Christ. And the more that our confidence gets rooted in His identity, the more that we are free to be community together. That is the gospel, and that's how it creates community. So this morning, we have a special privilege to come to communion. That's why the kneelers are here. We do this once a month. And communion is something that Jesus had given to His church as a way of partaking in Jesus. Literally, as we come and we take bread and we take wine, we are sharing in Christ. He is present through the power of Holy Spirit. We're encountering Him in a very mysterious way. But also, communion is meant to, in a very tangible way, let you touch the gospel, taste the gospel. It's a way of driving the truth of the gospel deeper into your heart. As you taste the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, it's meant to root in your hearts, my identity is not in my performance or how bad I blew it last night. My confidence is is in the finished work of Christ. And communion is meant to bolster your confidence in that. And so as we come, as we come to take of Christ, we come acknowledging the full reality of indwelling sin. That's why every time before we come to communion, we have a prayer of confession together. It's a way of us saying, before I come and take of your grace, I'm going to acknowledge how much I need it. There's a danger in my heart. I need your grace. And then we come to the table to receive it. So if you would, open your, your psalm books up. And on the second page, there's a list of confessions here. We're going to take the top one. And we're going to pray this together. It's a way of us corporately together, owning as a church, I am in desperate need of your grace. And I open and confess from my heart, my tremendous need of you. So let's go and let's pray together. Second page of your songbooks. Let's pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy... Forgive what we have been. Help us change what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Now take a few moments to confess silently to the Lord 
your sin in need of His grace.